Well, this is a challenge this morning, and the only way I can figure out how to do the challenge is literally to preach two sermons. But I think uh, I can fit them within our usual time frame, but there will be a very distinctive qualitative difference between uh, Sermon 1 and Sermon 2, or different uh, content and different theme. Although, admittedly, um, the backdrop to all of it can be about answering the question, how big is your God? How big is your God? I'd like to first of all begin with that marvelous passage from first, I'm sorry, from Second Samuel. Uh, it's a difficult place just to drop into scripture, although we've been working our way through First Samuel for the last several weeks. But let's remember what's going on here. This is an elegy written by the future king of Israel, David. It's an elegy, it's a poem of lament for the death of the first Israelite king that Israel ever had, Saul, and the death of his son. Albeit that David and Saul were in mighty conflict in their lives because Saul had a paranoia about the gifts and talents of this up and rising star who had slew Goliath once upon a time. But here we have in that reading the fact that Saul has been killed by the Philistines, that perennial enemy of the Jewish people there in the Holy Land. And even worse for David, his dear, dear, dear friend, Jonathan, the crown prince, has also been killed by the Philistines, both slain in battle. Now the action is very, very fast-paced here. And uh, we won't be able to follow it very easily through uh, these thoughts today. But David, remember, will soon emerge as God's chosen leader to fully establish the kingdom of Israel for the Jews in a way that it had never existed before and has never existed since. His monarchy, David's, will ultimately unify the north and the south for the first time. And the 12 tribes of Israel will enjoy times together under one head of prosperity, consolidation, and peace unlike anything they had ever known in their lives. But before any of that begins to unfold in 2 Samuel, here we are in the first chapter, David calls his fighting men and their families together to grieve and mourn the death of Saul, and especially the death of his beloved best friend, Jonathan. And so he writes this beautiful elegy, this beautiful poem. He's composed this narrative. He sets it to music. And he takes up a stringed instrument and sings this lament and actually commands them all to know it as well. How the mighty have fallen in battle. This is a heart weighted down with deep and profound mourning and grief. How the mighty have fallen in battle. As he works towards the end of that song of lament, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love, interesting, the most translations have your love for me was wonderful. One of my mentors was very clear that that was the wrong preposition to use there. And that uh, it really needs to be the preposition to, to be clear on on Jonathan's love and the 
the, uh, the quality of Jonathan's love, your love to me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. Um, not that David was not attracted to women, we remember. Bathsheba will come down later, the, down the pipe later. But a profound and deep brotherhood friendship between these two men. He's lost his best friend. He's lost a fellow that he uh, just admired and loved. And Jonathan, strangely, as a crown prince, earlier in this story, once upon a time, gives David over his symbols of authority as a crown prince and offers himself to David as his servant. Can you imagine? The crown prince, and he takes uh, his, his weapon of battle, I believe he takes a ring, he takes his garments, and he presents them to David as an offering to say, I'm going to serve you, David, even though I'm the rightful son and heir from Saul. An amazing relationship. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war, Jonathan and Saul, mighty warriors were the weapons of war. The weapons of war have perished. Now, I would like to use that and leverage it in a way for us today. Likewise, because we are in a week in which we celebrate our nation's independence, the United States of America, yet another nation formed by a collected group of tribes from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, who have come together, if you will, under one nation and one God. And in many ways, we are still fighting for our independence in every war that we undertake or every battle or every conflict that we undertake. Our independence is never guaranteed nor assured. It is partly gift and partly earned. So these present settings in Iraq and especially today Afghanistan are places now where we fight for our independence, for peace, for security, for a place for our children and grandchildren to grow up, for freedom, for prosperity that this great nation enjoys. But the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, like every other war, are not without cost. Lives, young lives, have been lost. Citadel graduates' lives. Men that friends of ours have known, perhaps, have given their lives, as have many others. Men and women have returned home without a right arm or a left arm, or without a right leg or a left leg, or missing both. They have returned home without their eyes. Others now must make their way through all the ravages of the emotions in the mind caused by concentrated and repeated psychological trauma, something we know as post-traumatic stress syndrome. With all this in mind, the years of wars, the number of troops called into active duty, and the number of reserve units called into active duties that have been deployed, 
for those whom we know personally and those whom we will never meet. I've asked as parish rector directed our outreach ministry to begin to give new and particular attention, special focus to making gifts from the St. Paul's family to organizations that care for the returning men and women, those who have been wounded in war or to support their families. You'll hear more about that when, as, in the future as we do that in an intentional fashion. Gifts also to organizations that support families whose sons and daughters are not returning home, who have paid the ultimate price in their service to the nation. Organizations like the Yellow Ribbon Fund that Ellen and I have supported for families of wounded veterans as they return and are housed at uh, Naval Bethesda Hospital and Walter Reed Hospital, and the families that must come to Washington from all over the United States and live there for months as their spouses or their sons or daughters are being rehabilitated. Or organization like Paws for Patriots from Southeastern Guide Dogs. And Paws for Patriots, Southeastern Guide Dogs, provides a dog and training and living accommodations for eight weeks while you come to get to know your dog and learn how to use him for those veterans, uh, those men returning, and those women returning who have lost their eyesight through these IED roadside bombs. And if you know of some organization that you believe it would be worthy of our support, I wish you would submit the organization's name or web address and send it to me, and I will forward it to Selena and the outreach team, and we'll discern where and how we can best support this. That is acknowledging that there are thousands of men and women coming home who have been there so that we could be here in safety. And we want to help in love and in the name of Jesus. We want to impact their world in Jesus' name when they return. And this morning on July 1st, a few days before our own Independence Day, I want us to invite us simply to pause for a moment to pray and offer this prayer first for the valiant, the courageous, and those who have sacrificed so much, and then a prayer for the wounded, and a prayer for the deceased. So let us pray. O oh Lord God of hosts, stretch forth, we pray, your almighty arm to strengthen and protect our servicemen and women. Support them in times of conflict, and in their rest and training, keep them safe from all evil. Endue them with courage and loyalty, and grant that in all things they may serve without reproach through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And a prayer for the wounded. O oh Lord, we ask you to have mercy upon all who are this day wounded and suffering. Though family and friends be far away, let your grace be their comfort. And raise them to health again. And chiefly give them patience and faith in your healing love and power through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And for those who will not return from foreign lands, Almighty God, we give you thanks for all your servants who have laid down their lives in the service of our country. And grant to them your mercy, love, and the joy of your presence in your heavenly kingdom, now and forevermore. Amen. That's the end of Sermon 1. I want to invite us also to stand and 
Let us simply pause and ponder this great independence that we enjoy as Americans as we hear play the national anthem. Please be seated. And finally, we have men in this family of St. Paul's who have served even in World War II, but also Korea and Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan, some who are serving now. But I want to invite you all to stand and uh, just let us say thank you to you all, men and women who have served um, our armed forces. Would you all stand up, please? Thank you. And Cindy, would you stand up for Mick? Thank you. Thank you. How big is your God? If you follow the thread through the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapter of Mark, where we are making our way right now, you will see that that is a big question being asked. It's a question I bring back from the Canuga Renewal Conference because the questions revolve around faith, as our teacher of this past week um, offered. But he challenged us to think in terms of the question, not how large is your faith, but how big is your God in whom you have faith? And if you follow that thread through the gospel, um, might recall, for example, that Jesus has to calm the storm and he critiques his disciples in the boat why are you so afraid do you still have no faith is there a God big enough to calm the storm Jesus is God is and in this story with Jairus's daughter and even on his way to respond to the request of a father who is in agony over the sickness of his daughter and sees that she is dying and they come to Jesus and say she's already dead why bother the teacher anymore 
and he pushes forward to her house. How big is the God that Jesus serves? And when he arrives at the house and he says, she's not dead, she's asleep. She was dead. He simply means this is going to be a transformative experience of a child being raised back to life, resuscitated. They laughed at him. They had a small God. So he gets them out of the way. Peter, James, and John, his first team he brings in. Mom and dad who want beyond all, you know, just with all hope, want this child somehow to live. He brings them into the room. Their God is a big God. So I ask you, how big is your God? Big enough to trust him with all your money? Say, Lord, you show us how to expend this, how to spend it, what to spend it on. Is he big enough to guide you in a big decision in your life? To trust him and ask him and seek his counsel? How big is your God? Big enough to forgive your sins and so that you truly know they have been forgiven by the authority of the name of Jesus? How big is your God? Big enough to provide for you in times of trouble? David is at a low point on the one hand as he writes this lament and elegy. It's times of trouble for Israel. The Philistines are dominant at that point. It's years after the Goliath slaying. David's got a big God. Is he big enough to provide for you in your time of trouble? Is your God big enough to heal you? Jairus believed in Jesus and his big God. Is your God big enough not to heal you as you request? Trusting that he will perfectly work out his plans for you in his own time and in his own way. How big is your God? We have an awesome God. He is a mighty God, Scripture says. He's a big God. Is your God big? Some of you are note takers and some of you are not, but I want simply to let us rumble through Scripture for a moment to consider what the Bible says about this God of the Jews this God of the desert storm, this God, the Father of the Lord Jesus, your God and mine. Take, for example, Habakkuk, a small, lesser-known prophet, small in that he only wrote a little bit, but he wrote some big words. He's got a big God. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Don't matter how bad it gets. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. A big God. Or take Job. We are all well acquainted with the travails of Job, the testing of Job. Job. And yet, after he has lost everything, Job still can stand and say about his big God, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him he's put all his eggs in one basket or what about the 23rd psalm written by david himself who is certainly indeed as a great warrior 
been in the valley of the shadow of death himself, even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us here have known that experience or are having that experience right now. I will fear no evil. David had a big God. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. St. Paul had a big God too. 12th chapter, 2 Corinthians. Paul had an affliction, some kind of sickness, and we have no idea what it is, been many a guess made, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. He, he realized he had seen things that no other person had ever seen that had increased his faith. But there was given to him a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan. It must have been something really awful, a, something that tormented him. He prayed to God three times, pleading with the Lord to take it away from him. But the answer he got from the Lord was enough for him because David had a big God. And the Lord said to David, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, and my power is made perfect in weakness. How big is your God? Paul writes to the church in Corinth, that great 13th chapter, you know, we just know in part now. We prophesy in part now. We see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But one day we shall see face to face. Now we only know in part about this big God. But then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three abide in our lives, faith, hope, and love. I expect that we will each arrive in heaven. And if we're smart, we'll have a whole list of questions. They're the why questions. Because the why questions won't get answered here on earth. Why did this sickness come upon me, my beloved one? Why this untimely death? Why this horrible situation? Why this and why that? And when we get to heaven and we know, not in part, but see face to face the Lord and all his plans, I expect before we even look for the answers to the questions, our response will be as we see with those eyes something like, oh, it all works out, doesn't it, Lord, for our lives? Ah. Oh. That's a big God. And the God of Jesus, John 14, Jesus saying about his big God, his Father and yours, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, a big God. Trust also in me, a big Savior. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. You can trust my words, he's saying, every word I've given you. Every word of the New Testament, in other words. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. Because the God of Jesus is a big God. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is a big God. He's a mighty God and he's an awesome God. And best of all, perhaps, he's your God. Amen.